This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Experiences Produce Results. In the first half, Estela Marquez shares her address, Enduring and Trusting to the End. Then in the second half, Kenneth A. Solon speaks on Nourishing the Tree. The prophet Isaiah knew how crucial it was in our lives to trust in the Lord's plan for each one of us. He said, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Certainly, the Lord has given my family and I the strength to run and not be weary, walk and not faint. We have our share of adversity, but we have seen Isaiah's promise and everything that we have experienced. I know that if we are humble to wait upon the Lord, He walks with us when things go well and sustain us when things seem too painful to endure, too difficult to accomplish, or too dark to grow through. I have seen the Lord's hands guiding my family and me during all the stages of our lives. He was there during my experience with poverty as a child. He was there in our days wandering as refugees of war. He has been there when our losses were so deep, so painful, that it was difficult to see the light, but his light has been constant in our lives. I grew up in some of the poorest areas in Guatemala. My house was an adobe home built in Colonial Florida. We lacked material comforts, but we were blessed with divine abundance in many ways. I was privileged to belong to a family with loving and caring parents and siblings. I had a happy childhood and did not know how poor we were until I entered high school and saw the world beyond La Florida where I grew up. I am a first-generation college graduate. My parents were farmers and never had the opportunity to receive any formal education. However, I was blessed with a mother who had a tenacious desire for her children to be educated. I was also blessed with a father who, using the words of the prophet Samuel from the Old Testament, always encouraged me to be strong and a good courage. My older brother was the first convert to the church in my family. He was a good missionary, and even though he lived far away from us, year after year he kept sending missionaries to our door. We were Catholic, and my mom was not interested in listening to the missionaries. Finally, my older sister decided to invite the missionaries inside, which led my mom, my sisters, and I to later be baptized into the church. My dad joined us a few years later. Many miracles followed our conversion. The gospel brought us a new hope and the knowledge that God had a plan for each one of us. Our lives were filled with the joy to know our divine heritage, and to understand the purpose of our existence here. Before our conversion to the gospel, my parents moved to the city in search of better opportunities for us. In Guatemala in those years, children did not have a guaranteed space in school. At the beginning of every school year, my mom would get up around 3 a.m. to register at the only elementary school in La Florida. From my mother's example, I knew early in life that education was important, and I wanted to become a teacher someday. In the middle of our material limitations, I was able to finish my high school with a vocational certificate to teach elementary school. 
I wanted to get a college education, but I did not have the $45 needed in those days to register for college. My older sister was living in Illinois when I graduated from high school, and she sent me $60 to buy my graduation ring. I used the money to pay for my college registration at La Universidad San Carlos de Guatemala in the College of Chemical Engineering. I had very little resources, but many dreams I wanted to accomplish. Remembering the words my father had taught me to be strong and of good courage, I walked for the first time into a university campus, scared and confused, but full of hope. In 1975, I met my husband Israel and soon fell in love with him. Israel and I married the following year. We planned to marry them in the temple, but we didn't have a temple in Guatemala. So we drove for four days to get sealed in the Mesa, Arizona temple. When we finally arrived, we were grateful to enter the house of the Lord for the first time. Our lives were filled with lots of joy. Making sacred covenants with the Lord gave us a new perspective about what he expected from us. The 70s were difficult times in Guatemala. We experienced the devastating earthquake of 1976 that destroyed many pueblos in the rural areas and in the poor sectors of the city. My adobe home was totally destroyed. In addition to the natural disasters, government oppression was prevalent everywhere. It was difficult to witness the social and political violence against the poor, students, workers, and other good people and to feel completely powerless to do anything about it. My husband Israel prayed and fasted about what to do. He was inspired to be involved in the movement to protect the rights of laborers, who were at that time earning 52 cents per day, working under inhumane conditions. In a country with lots of political and social violence, my husband's involvement had a high cost for our young family. We were living under an authoritarian government that interpreted any dissent from the social, economic, and political status quo as an open conspiracy against it. Soon anonymous threats against my husband's lives appeared everywhere. Twice government forces attempted to kidnap my husband. There was a time when people who disagree with the government policies will be abducted in the dark, taken to unknown places, and then, days later, their bodies will appear with signs of torture. It was dangerous to voice your disagreement with the cruelties happening everywhere in Guatemala. Berta, our first child, was born in 1978. She was a long-awaited blessing for us. She came to the world in times of oppression, fear, and violence. When Berta was only six weeks old, my husband experienced the first of two assassination attempts by the Guatemalan government this one in front of our home. Later in life, Berta eloquently wrote the impact of war on children living under constant fear. She was one of those children. She wrote, quote, I feel bad for every child in the womb that subsequently experienced infancy under the shadows of war, violence, greed, and imperialism. I know that every child who is living now under the reign of terror, war, abuse, and trauma is going to carry great heaviness with them their entire lives. Warfare, PTSD, exile, all of these things cast such long shadows. Close quote. In the last assassination attempts, an innocent person died as government assassins tried to kill my husband. 
After this last attempt, we knew that it was impossible for us to continue living in Guatemala in those conditions. As the government attempted to stop the social restlessness of its people, several leaders of the movement were incarcerated, disappeared, or killed. Many of our dear friends suffered this fate. Three bishops of the church were killed during those terrible years. All of them had families and were followers of the Savior. Why did they not survive? Many times we wonder why we were spared from the unfortunate fate that had followed our good friends. What did the Lord want us to learn from those difficult experiences? Having faith in God's plan for us was crucial. As we tried to see what his will was for us, my husband, our daughter Berta, and I were forced to seek refuge at one of the foreign embassies in Guatemala. After a month of negotiations between the government and the embassy, we were allowed to leave the country under the embassy's diplomatic protection. This was the beginning of our lives as refugees in a strange land far away from the support of our family and friends. Throughout all of our experiences, one thing has remained constant, our faith in Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our commitment to be his disciples and to remember the covenants we made with him. He had mercy with our imperfections and walked with us, especially when we felt we were losing our strength. President Dieter F. Uttorf in the September 2014 Women's Conference said, quote, Walking in the path of discipleship does not need to be a bitter experience. Discipleship lifts our spirits with faith, hope, and charity. It fills our spirits with light in times of darkness and serenity during times of sorrow. Close quote. The Lord lifted our spirits and will try to live as his disciples in the middle of our circumstances. He filled our lives with hope and with precious moments of joy so that we could keep moving forward with faith. The blessings of the support from the community of the church was constant in our lives. Wherever we went, we found good people that offered us their love, opening doors for us, and provided us with safe spaces. In the devotional of December 10, 2019, Sister Jim B. Bingham, General Relief Society President, spoke to us about the importance of keeping a celestial perspective. She said, quote, The viewpoint that makes all things clear is an eternal perspective the perfect, all-encompassing perspective of our Heavenly Father. With his ability to see and know and understand all things past, present, and future in a higher and broader and deeper way that we can possible gain, his perspective is complete. Close quote. Our time as refugees was a time where it was more important than ever to keep the eternal perspective in our lives. But I am going to tell you the keeping the divine perspective in the middle of trials is not always easy. It was certainly not easy for us. Six years we wandered from Guatemala to Costa Rica and from Costa Rica to Mexico, trying to find a place where we could live in peace and raise our family. Having the gospel in our lives gave us direction, understanding, and comfort. The Lord's hand guided us as we tried to create a future for our family. When things became difficult, I will remember Isaiah's promise that the Lord will strengthen us so we could keep walking and not faint. 
the Lord strengthened us as we were trying to figure it out where to settle. We already have family here, and it made sense that coming to the U.S. would be a good option for us. However, we resisted the idea. We were trusting in our own plans, not knowing that the Lord had a plan for us. We stayed in Costa Rica for a few years, but later decided to settle in Mexico City. But again, the Lord had other plans for us. In 1985, a devastating earthquake destroyed a good part of Mexico City. Many people were trapped in the collapsed buildings, and thousands lost their lives. We were fortunate to come out of that tragedy only with material losses, but again, the Lord spared our lives once more. Many things changed after the earthquake, and it was not easy to continue living in Mexico City. By then, we had four children under the age of eight. This prompted us to make the crucial decision of moving to the U.S. This was another opportunity to grow, and we ventured it out again into the unknown. We arrived in California, where we could be closer to our family. Neither of us spoke the language, knew the culture, nor understood the environment. Yet, I believe the Lord, with his complete perspective, saw for us what we could not see at that time. Through these experiences, we learn that our success and happiness depends on how we react to the adversity we experience in life, and not in the adversity itself. Some of you may be experiencing challenges right now as you learn to live with the realities of our new normal. You may be struggling with uncertainty, health problems, financial burdens, personal or family difficulties. I want you to know that you're not alone in your journey. God has a plan for each one of you. He knows you and knows what you need. His arms are ready to encircle you and carry you during your difficult times. In my years working as an advisor for multicultural students, I have been privileged to learn the stories of students who are in the middle of incredible challenges. But keep their eternal perspective and stay firm in what they know about their divine heritage. I feel blessed for the opportunity to walk with these students, to be a little part of their journey, and to learn from their incredible resiliency. Remember that God has a divine plan for each one of you. God already had a plan for my family and I when we finally decided to immigrate here. We had overcome many things in our lives that adjusting to our new life was no bigger than surviving a war in Guatemala or a couple of earthquakes but their transition was still challenging. We did not know that it would take us many years to adjust our immigration status here in the U.S., which came with some big limitations in our ability to grow here. I have some college education, but it did not matter because I did not speak the language and my immigration status was in limbo. With the support of my dear husband, I went back to school to learn English. Learning the language was crucial, but very challenging for me. Up to this day, I continue learning the language, and as you can tell, I never lost my accent. As my English skills improve, my job opportunities also improve. I was able to get a part-time job as a teacher assistant in a local school district in California. It did not provide very much in terms of income, but it motivated me to be improving my education. Once I felt comfortable with my English skills, either to take a few other college classes. 
My daughter Berta and I went to Mount San Jacinto Community College and took philosophy class together. While I struggled for weeks to write one paper, Berta, who had a gift with words and loved to write, will do hers the night before. Both of us will get an A, and I felt that was unfair. No doubt Berta was smarter than me. It was not easy to work part-time, take care of my family, and go to school. But I dared to dream. And I am here today to tell you that with God on your side, nothing is impossible. It is possible to reach your goals if you work hard, keep the right perspective, and use your challenges as opportunities to grow and develop. Find out what the Lord's plan is for you. And then there to walk by faith, knowing that He is leading the way for you. As I said before, living by faith is not an easy thing. In the early 90s, our family did not escape the impact of the recession. We experienced serious financial troubles and ended up losing our home. To better support our family, I have to leave my part-time job and take on a full-time job. By then, I was done with my associate degree, which most people can finish in two years. Due to family responsibilities, it took me almost four years to complete it. But when I needed a full-time job, it was a blessing to have. I secured a job with the Department of Public Social Services in Riverside, California. That was a big step for me in many ways. I knew then that if I wanted to grow in that department, I needed more education. I made the decision to go back to school. But this time, I had seven children, a home to care for, and a full-time job. I went to a three-year program offered to working adults by La Sierra University. I worked nine hours daily, and after work, I went directly to school, two to three times a week. Was this difficult? Yes, it was very difficult. By the time I got home, I was exhausted, but I still have a family to nurture and homework to do. I could not have done this without the incredible support of my dear husband, who has always been by my side along this journey. I tell him that my degrees are his degrees. In 2004, I graduated with honors from La Sierra University with my bachelor's degree in social work. Once I finished my bachelor's degree, I was promoted to a better position with the same department. By then, three of my daughters were attending BYU. Now let me go back to my humble beginnings in Guatemala. When I was 15, I dreamed of attending BYU. A good American missionary encouraged me to write a letter to BYU and express my desire to attend in the future, so I did. I got a letter back from BYU. The letter was nicely written in Spanish, but it asked me to write my next letter in English. My English skills then were very limited, so I never thought again about BYU. Thirty years later, my daughters were attending the University of My Dreams. At least now my daughters were achieving their dreams, and somehow I was also achieving mine through them. Those were good years over in California. My heart was full of gratitude for the many blessings we were receiving. Life was good. I had a great job. We live in a nice neighborhood, and my husband's business was doing well. What else could I have asked for? With the encouragement of my children and my husband, I applied to the master's program at Cal State University and BYU. The truth is, I did not believe BYU would be interested in me. 
I only applied to BYU to appease my daughters, who were nagging my husband and I to move to Utah. Did they say, Utah? No way. It was too cold and too far for us. But I was humble when I received the acceptance letter from BYU. This was another big change in our lives. Coming to BYU meant leaving everything we were already familiar with in California. You can guess the rest of the story. We moved to Utah, and my dream as a teenager finally came true. But that was not the end. It was the beginning of new opportunities and blessings. My first job right after graduate school was working for Provo School District as a school social worker. There I was blessed to serve many families whose children were struggling in one way or another. I understood their challenges well. In my childhood, I had been in a similar family. Those years of being a school social worker contained some of my more memorable personal and professional experiences. I believe that the Lord works in mysterious ways, and if we are willing to submit our will to His, He will let us climb up the mountains with wings like eagles. My work with Provo School District prepared me to work with multicultural and first-generation college students here at BYU. I have been blessed to work with very bright students who bring to BYU unique perspectives and experiences. I feel privileged and grateful to be there for them, to listen to their stories and guide them so that they can achieve their own dreams. Nothing brings me more satisfaction than seeing them not surviving, but thriving at BYU. As my memory goes back to my adobe house of my childhood, I see my journey as a journey of hope. This life is full of challenges, but there is one thing I know. The Lord allowed me to have those experiences for a reason. And now it's my honor and responsibility to share them with you, the young dreamers of today. It is possible to make your journey a journey of hope and a journey of success. Ask the Lord what His plan for you is. And as you are willing to submit your will to His, be humble and have the faith to let His hand guide yours. You have divine potential to accomplish anything for which you are willing to work hard. Our success and happiness does not depend on the circumstances we face, but how we face those circumstances. As you were to do well in your classes during this historical semester, remember that you came to be with you with a purpose. I love the words of President Worthen, who said in a 2016 devotional, quote, You are not here by accident. God has a work to perform through you. Make him the center of your efforts. Do what he will want you to do. Let his light shine more brightly through you as a result of your experience at BYU. If you do, miracles will happen in your life, and you will see the majesty of the Lord work in the lives of others. Close quote. I pray and hope that you internalize President Wharton's words. You are here because the Lord has a plan for you. Edward Rasvan said in the October 2019 conference that the Lord is in the small details of our lives. I strongly believe this. The Lord is certainly in the small details of your lives. I know this by experience. My family and I did not leave Guatemala by accident. There was a purpose for us. I am very grateful for the many miracles we witnessed as we let the Lord's hand guide us to this place. 
Sometimes it feels like the difficulties we experience in life pile up on us one after another. It comforts me to know that God is merciful and he does not let us have more than what we can bear. In 2015, I felt overwhelmed when I was diagnosed with a brain aneurysm almost at the same time that one of my children was diagnosed with a debilitating chronic illness. During those times, when I was ready to ask the Lord for a little break, He showed me His perfect love by giving me the strength to move forward with faith. The aneurysm was surgically fixed, and I like to joke that I was giving a new brain God is good. The pruning of our faith did not stop there. When our daughter Berta was born, we were grateful to finally have a baby after two unsuccessful pregnancies. Soon we realized the Heavenly Father has sent us a very special spirit. As the oldest in the family, she was the peacemaker and the ringleader. Berta was a master at coming up with the silliest family jokes, and she loved to imitate my accent, which brought us lots of fun. She loved writing and creating art, but above all, she had a compassionate heart. Berta was always looking for opportunities to serve and nurture those who are often disenfranchised, forgotten, and overlooked. Berta's wits and command for words was never lacking. She often used this gift during her untiring advocacy work for the LDS, LGBTQ plus community. Berta loved and sought to love follow the Savior by being a humble servant to those that needed love and care. She once told me that every time she served others, she felt she was breaking bread with the Savior. Berta especially advocated for the homeless LGBTQ plus youth who frequently fall victims to predators. She worked to find them a safe place to live and access to health resources. With all the love and compassion she had in her heart, Berta battled with generalized and major depression disorder. In June of 2018, Berta died by suicide. The days following Berta's death were some of the most difficult days in my life. I felt like a broken vessel. Sometimes... It was difficult to breathe or see the light. But the Savior's light was there, comforting us, sustaining us, as He has sustained us in the past. Many angels in the bodies of family members, dear friends, and the LGBTQ plus community came to minister to us. Even people I have never met before. As difficult as the passing of Bertha was for our family, knowing that she inspired and touched many lives has been a healing experience for us. I found comfort in the counsel given by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve in the 2013 conference. Quote, Though we may feel we are like broken vessels, as the psalmist said, we must remember the vessel is in the hands of the divine potter. Broken minds can be healed just the way broken bones and broken hearts are healed. While God is at work making those repairs, the rest of us can help by being merciful, non-judgmental, and kind. Close quote. If any of you today are feeling lonely, fearful, or hopeless, I invite you to seek help and never take a catastrophic solution for a temporal challenge. God loves you 
and you have a place here. Choose to live. Seek help and remember how much you are loved by our perfect Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior experienced in Gethsemane everything that all of us have or will experience in our lives. He knows each of us personally and he understands our sorrows. This is the promise we receive in the words of the prophet Isaiah. Fear thou now, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, for I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. I pray that we may keep our commitment to strengthen our faith in our Heavenly Father and on His beloved Son. I pray that we trust in His divine plan for us. God has a complete and eternal perspective. This certainty keeps me going with hope. Please take the Lord's divine hand and let Him guide you in the sacred name of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Experiences Produce Results. We've just heard from Estela Marquez. After the break, we'll return with Kenneth A. Solon for Nourishing the Tree. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Experiences Produce Results. Next is Kenneth A. Solon, BYU professor of chemical engineering at the time of this address, titled Nourishing the Tree. So I've come today to talk about food, specifically spiritual food, but also its metaphorical connections to physical food. I realize that in some ways I'm preaching to the choir. After all, you're all here at a BYU devotional. You already know of the importance of spiritual nourishment or you wouldn't be here. Most of you are probably very healthy, with the spiritual equivalent of rosy cheeks and sparkling teeth. But this life is full of challenges that would exhaust our spirits, weaken our resolve, and infect us with sin. There are times when we feel a little less than at our peak, a little less than fit for a celestial marathon, and maybe even a bit weak of soul. We all have spiritual peaks and valleys, and sometimes we may feel that we've been in a valley for an awfully long time, and the memory of our last peak is fading fast. If so, there may be help in my message this morning. As I've suggested, many of the Lord's commandments use words and images associated with physical food. Thus, He teaches us that there is a close correlation between spiritual and physical nourishment. I believe that he uses this metaphor not just for poetic impact, but because it teaches some vital principles about how to avoid serious pitfalls and how to fulfill our mission here on the earth. Let's review that mission. Latter-day scriptures make it clear that our ultimate goal is to become like our Father in Heaven and our Savior so that we can live with them. This is not an instantaneous transformation, but requires a process, a process called sanctification, made possible by the Lord's grace. In fact, in this process, we receive grace for grace until we receive of His fullness, just as the Savior exemplified. For our part of the process, we need to make righteous choices 
And we need to be strong against powerful, destructive influences. As we do so, the Lord makes weak things become strong unto us. Thus we grow stronger and stronger until we are able to live the law of a celestial kingdom without coercion or restraint. This becomes the criterion for determining if we can ultimately live where our Father in heaven lives and where there is celestial glory. For he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. The Lord's commandments are really an instruction manual for the process. Among those instructions are guidelines to help us succeed rather than fail. To visualize this, let's think for a minute about a similar process, growing physically. In elementary school and high school, we learned that our physical growth and health require that we provide our bodies with proper nutrition. We need a regular intake of protein, carbohydrates, fats, vitamins, and minerals. If we have that intake, we are far more likely to have strength, energy, mental health, growth, healing, and a defense against the constant attack of infectious organisms around us. But the same is true of spiritual growth and health. That is, we need a regular intake of spiritual food, like prayer, scripture study, temple attendance, and loving service to others. If we have that intake, we will have moral strength, clear and inspired thinking, growth in spiritual stature, and a defense against the constant attack of the adversary. Unfortunately, there is also a negative side. If we deny our physical bodies the necessary nutrients over a period of time, we can develop deficiencies and even starvation. The symptoms of malnutrition and starvation include such problems as weakness, mental confusion, loss of memory, decreased growth, decreased defense against infection, and even a decreased ability to absorb nutrients. Do you realize that there can also be spiritual starvation? If we deny ourselves spiritual nutrients, the results will include moral weakness, confusion, lack of growth, and more vulnerability to temptation and sin. Brothers and sisters, these spiritual effects are real, and we are all vulnerable. Every bishop works with members whose lives have been devastated by serious sin. During my service in that office, I heard many confessions in which such a heartbroken member would say, I never meant for this to happen. Almost in disbelief, this devastated soul would explain that he or she had always been a faithful member of the Church with a strong testimony, sometimes even holding major leadership positions in the Church. How could this have happened? My questions to the member were always, Are you praying every day? Are you spending time with the scriptures every day? Almost without exception, the answer was no. I would question further, Did you ever do these things? Sometimes the answer would be, Yes, I used to pray and study. Then I would ask, When did you stop? Invariably, I learned that the prayer and the scripture study stopped first, and then the serious problems began. I would walk away from these interviews with increased feelings of my own vulnerability and of my own need for the Lord's protection and nourishment. Not only does spiritual nutrition help to prevent sin, it also helps with repentance, with spiritual healing. I use the word healing because sin causes injury to the spirit. It causes the wounding of our eternal soul. With Christ as our master physician, 
The healing process requires remorse and confession and restitution, but it also requires time and nourishment in order to regain our spiritual strength and equilibrium and to repair the painful damage. That is why repentance from serious sin will always include regular prayer and scripture study, food for healing. But we are also vulnerable, perhaps even more vulnerable, to another kind of spiritual disease besides the kind that leads to formal church disciplinary action. I speak of the more subtle disease of spiritual retardation, a kind of stunted growth and lethargy that just prevents us from growing or going anywhere. It's the kind of malady that was the point of a Mormon folktale about Satan and his generals discussing how to prevent a Latter-day Saint from achieving exaltation. In the story, one of Satan's generals suggests, let's tell him, meaning the Latter-day Saint, that there is no God and no Christ. Satan, thoroughly experienced in such matters, quickly dismisses the plan, saying, that won't work. He knows by the Spirit that there is a God and a Christ, and he won't believe us. At that point, a second general offers, well, all right, we won't challenge his testimony of God and Christ. We'll just tell him that Joseph Smith was a fraud and there was no restoration of the gospel. Again, Satan quickly sees the flaw and says, that won't work either. He's read the Book of Mormon and has the confirmation of the Spirit. Frustrated, a third general asks, isn't there anything we can do to prevent him from reaching exaltation? With a wicked smile, because that's the only kind he has, Satan answers, oh yes, we'll let him have his testimony of God and Christ and of the restoration. We'll just tell him that there's no hurry. Well, it's just folklore, but it teaches a true principle that if we aren't diligent about our spiritual nourishment, we can lose our way. Without the energy derived from regularly feasting at the Lord's table, we can weaken and then be tempted to indulge just a little in forbidden things like R-rated movies, pornography, dishonesty, gossip, Sabbath-breaking, meanness, and contention, to mention just a few of the spiritual poisons in Satan's arsenal. Whether it leads to more serious transgression or not, it will surely prevent our progress and cause the tree to wither. We will withdraw ourselves from the Spirit of the Lord just a little, just enough, not to have his help in the face of temptation or disappointment, or to help us endure a trial, just enough that the sweet and sacred experiences of the sanctification process just won't happen. Brothers and sisters, it is vital that we recognize how vulnerable we are to the forces that would prevent us from returning to our celestial home. We need spiritual nutrition to strengthen us against those forces and to help us in our growth process. It is that kind of nourishment that the Lord repeatedly urges us to obtain as he uses the metaphor of physical food. Let's review some aspects of that metaphor. The Savior said we should hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. The Lord is telling us how much we should desire the things of eternal value. To hunger and thirst are among the most powerful urgings of our physical being. This is not a description of casual interest or even a pleasant longing, but this description is of a physical craving for life-sustaining sustenance, for that which we need for our very existence. He is telling us that we should crave righteousness as though our existence depends on it. And, of course, it does. Incidentally, 
We hunger and thirst for things we don't yet have. And the Lord is commending us and promising us a blessing, not because we're already righteous, but because we desperately wish to be. The things of the Spirit should become delicious to us. Said Alma, The word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul. Yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding. Yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. Think of the power of the word delicious. Of all of our sensory experiences, one of the most intense is associated with our sense of taste. It uses not only our taste buds, but also our senses of smell and touch. In fact, taste is so potentially pleasurable, it plagues those of us who are trying to resist his tempting call. By saying that the influence of the Lord's Spirit would be delicious, Alma was teaching us that that influence would become the most pleasurable of all pleasures. Said the psalmist, O taste and see that the Lord is good. We can all relate to the power of this metaphor. One of our favorite family stories is about our son Aaron when he was two years old. Climbing up on the couch where his mother was reading the scriptures, he asked, Mom, why are you always reading that book? She answered, Because it is delicious to me. Just then the phone rang, and she went to another room to answer it. When she came back a few minutes later, there was Aaron, with several pages from the New Testament in his mouth, testing his mother's description. To this day, her Bible is missing Romans chapters 10 to 14. Many scriptures reinforce this metaphor. To the Hebrew saints, Paul talked of those who had tasted of the heavenly gift and the good word of God. And King Benjamin spoke of those who had tasted of the Lord's love. And to Lehi, the fruit of the tree in his vision was most sweet above all that he ever before tasted. Another aspect, the Lord wants us to feast on the word. We are not only to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to find it delicious, but he wants us to respond proactively by seeking spiritual nourishment. Nephi instructed us that after we are baptized, we must press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ. Imagine yourself at a feast. What kind of food would be there? Would it be what we sometimes call junk food? Or would it be nutritious food carefully and lovingly prepared? Would you sample a few items and then hurry away? The instruction for us to feast suggests that we partake slowly and deliberately, enjoying the quality and goodness until we are filled. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about what Nephi's counsel can mean in our lives by talking about feasting in prayer, feasting in the scriptures, feasting in service, and feasting upon Christ. First, feasting in prayer. In the first few years after my wife and I joined the church, my prayers would not be classified as feasting and prayer. They were more like nibbling or at best snacking. They were brief and often without depth. Seldom did I feel like I was communing with our Father in heaven or that he was hearing me. Have you ever felt that way? Influenced by the scriptures and numerous talks from the pulpit, I realized that I needed to spend more time in prayer. So I finally decided that I would pray for a half hour each morning. The first day, I arose early and locked myself in a spare bedroom in our apartment, knelt by the chair, and placed my watch next to me on the chair. I then began to pray. When I had finished repeating to the Lord the same things I had said to Him rather routinely every day for the previous year or two and could think of no more to say, I opened my eyes and looked up at my watch. Three minutes had elapsed. 
I remember thinking, oh great, what am I going to talk about for another 27 minutes? It was then that I admitted to myself that I wasn't allowing the Lord into my heart. Part of the problem was that I wasn't even allowing myself into my heart. You sisters are probably saying, typical male. I simply wasn't thinking consciously about my concerns, like about the people I loved or about my own repentance. I wasn't even taking the time to prepare for my time with the Lord. Think about that. If you had an appointment to talk with President Hinckley, wouldn't you plan ahead and think about what you would like to talk to him about? Yet I wasn't doing that with the Lord. That morning, realizing my problem, I began constructing a list of things that were really important to me that I would like to talk with the Lord about. Each morning I reviewed that list before beginning my prayer, and the list continued to grow as I thought of new things to add. In the next few days and weeks, my prayer became much more meaningful, and I began to feel the promptings and reassurances of the Lord during my prayer. I began to look forward eagerly to my private interview with the Lord. Furthermore, it soon became common for me to look up at my watch and discover that the 30 minutes had already gone by, and I had only discussed the first few items on my list. My young brothers and sisters, I urge you to feast in prayer. I'm not suggesting any particular length of time for your prayers. I'm only suggesting that you take the time to move past the formal and familiar phrases that often become too routine. Remember the Lord's counsel about vain repetition in prayer. Even more importantly, take the time to commune with the Lord, to share with Him the innermost thoughts and feelings of your heart, and the time to listen and to taste of His love. Second, feasting in the scriptures. One of the greatest sources of spiritual nourishment for all of us is the scriptures. Here again, the Lord counsels us to feast rather than hurriedly rushing through some verses to satisfy the requirements of a religion class or merely to complete a goal like finishing a marathon. There is strength and renewal in the Lord's words. President Spencer W. Kimball said, I find that when I get casual in my relationships with divinity, and when it seems that no divine ear is listening and no divine voice is speaking, that I am far, far away. If I immerse myself in the scriptures, the distance narrows and the spirituality returns. President Kimball was talking about feasting and nourishment. As was President Benson when he promised, the moment you begin a serious study of the Book of Mormon, you will find greater power to resist temptation. You will find the power to avoid deception. You will find the power to stay on the straight and narrow path. When you begin to hunger and thirst after those words, you will find life in greater and greater abundance. I hope that you have experienced the fulfillment of that promise, like one student who, after spending time on a reading assignment in the Book of Mormon, reported, This week I have four tests and two papers, and I have been neglecting my spirituality. This section of reading uplifted me a lot at a time I really needed it. I still have the same amount of work to do, but I feel relaxed and at peace. That principle was reinforced in our family when my wife suffered serious health problems over a number of years, which left her completely exhausted. The only way she could find the strength to continue on each day was to drink from the scriptures for 30 minutes to an hour every morning. Because she was so exhausted, she doubted that she would remember very many details of what she had read. But regardless of what she could remember mentally, she felt strength come to her to sustain her physically and emotionally throughout the day. 
But the nourishment of the scriptures also feeds our minds, because the Lord has promised that the Holy Ghost would bring all things to our remembrance that he has said unto us. Continuing with the story of my wife, after a number of years her strength began to return, and she was called to teach Sunday school, a position in which she still serves. To her delight, she experienced a fulfillment of the Lord's promise, as the Holy Ghost does indeed bring to her remembrance scriptures that she'd read during that very difficult time when she didn't think she would remember anything at all. But the promise is a two-edged sword, for if we never read his words in the first place, there is nothing for us to remember. Third, feasting and service. We all know that the greatest commandments are that we love the Lord and that we love our neighbor. The word love in these commandments is a verb, something we do. As we perform acts of kindness and service for our neighbors, we nourish them with the warmth and encouragement of fellowship within the covenant. Because of the love they receive, they are strengthened in their resolve to keep their covenants with the Lord and to follow our good examples. But the miracle is that we who provide the service are also nourished. Feelings of the Spirit buoy us up and draw us closer to the Lord, and our spiritual health is increased. One of the miracles of the Lord's Church is that it is designed to involve us in serving each other. As we perform the duties of our callings and work together in church service projects of love, we experience the joy of serving others, and we are nourished and strengthened. But the concept of feasting in service implies that our attitude of service extends beyond the Church to all of our interactions with others. I call this the attitude of shepherds versus hirelings. The Savior said, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is in hireling, and not the shepherd, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, because he is in hireling, and careth not for the sheep. When someone around us encounters a problem or challenge, do we flee to the safety of indifference? Or are we one of the Savior's under-shepherds who provides real caring and real help? This metaphor has become a common part of the vocabulary in our home. For example, there seems to be numerous instances in our everyday lives when we are given the proverbial runaround and brush-off by someone who is supposed to help but doesn't. So when my wife or I encounter a clerk or receptionist who is truly helpful and concerned, we say, I found a shepherd today. Fourth, feasting upon Christ. This is the ultimate and most important spiritual food of all. We are to feast on the Word. But remember that Christ is the Word. This is how he said it. I am the bread of life. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. This imagery reminds us of the ordinance of the sacrament, but its significance extends beyond the ordinance as well. When we eat and drink, we bring something inside us. Even more than inside us, we make it part of us as our bodies incorporate that food into our very cells. Our Savior is pleading with us to do likewise with Him, to bring Him inside us figuratively, and to incorporate Him into every fiber of our being. In the sacrament, 
we internalize the important aspects of His atonement, including the resurrection and our purification from sin. But we also renew our covenant to remember Him. He is the ultimate food, and we remember Him best by assimilating His characteristics into our soul. I am suggesting that in all of our praying, all of our studying, and all of our serving, we strive to become like Him, who is the example of all examples and the goal of all goals. My final plea this morning is that we feast often. With physical food, we eat regularly and frequently to provide a steady supply of nutrients. Why should it be otherwise with spiritual food? With prayer, the Savior commanded us to watch and pray always, lest we be tempted, and also to pray always that we may not faint. How often is always? We all remember Lehi's vision of the tree of life. Lehi saw the process by which we are to reach eternal life. He saw those who had entered onto the path. And his son Nephi later explained that the gate leading to the path is baptism. So we conclude that those on the path had already been baptized. But those on the path could not see the way because of the mist of darkness representing the temptations of the devil. Only those who were clinging or holding fast to the rod of iron which led by the path were successful in reaching the tree of life. Have you ever tried walking without being able to see? Maybe it was a game with blindfolds, and you started off walking in what you thought was the right direction. Do you remember taking off the blindfold and being surprised at how far off you had wandered from your goal? Maybe you almost pinned the tail on the lampshade instead of on the donkey. Would a rod of iron have been helpful? Now here's the point. How do you walk while clinging to a rod of iron? Unless you release your first grip, you can't walk very far. So you obviously need to let go and then re-grip the rod with every step. Each new grip restores your bearings. Each new grip helps to prevent going very far off course. If you stop using the rod thinking, I remember what direction to go, you may quickly wander off the path, just as you did with the blindfold. How often do we need to feast on the word which was represented by the rod? Every step, or in other words, every day. We might be tempted to say, I prayed a lot during my mission, or I read the scriptures a lot when I was a Sunday school teacher, so I can stop for a while. Or I remember those feelings and those details, so I don't need to do those things right now. Isn't that like saying, I remember what food looks like and tastes like, so I don't need to eat for a few weeks or a few months? Every culture develops habits of eating their meals at certain times to help its people remember to eat. Young people of your age may think it amazing that anyone would forget to eat. But it's very helpful to have the habit of eating meals at certain times. Notice I said meals rather than snacks, which we might be tempted to reach for in place of more well-balanced offerings. In our culture, there's breakfast, unless we sleep in until right before class, lunch, which you hope you can start eating if the devotional speaker would just stop talking, and dinner. The habit of daily spiritual meals provides a similar value. Years ago, a family home evening manual told the story of 17-year-old Karen, who received for her birthday a beautiful lamp in the shape of a parasol. When the lamp was lit, the parasol also turned. As she placed it on her dresser, she told her nine-year-old sister Lisa, who shared her bedroom, never touch this lamp. One night, while Karen was out on a date, Lisa thought it would be fun to have the special lamp on while she waited for her older sister to come home. 
Excitedly, she ran across the room, and just as she reached for the lamp, she tripped on the shoes she'd left on the floor. Down went Lisa, and down went the lamp, which broke into pieces on the floor. When Karen later quietly tiptoed into the room, she was greeted by the sudden sight of the broken lamp and the equally sudden attempt by Lisa to explain quickly what had happened. Karen became furious. In her anger, she hurled cruel and hurtful words at Lisa for what she'd done. In quick, angry movements, she got ready for bed. Then, because it was her practice, her good habit, before she climbed into bed, she knelt down for her evening prayer. Have you ever tried to pray when you're angry? As she knelt there, this daughter of God wrestled in the spirit against the forces of the evil one. In the background, she could hear the sobs of her little sister. In a situation which defines one of the most important battles of mortality for all of us, Karen prayed for help. Finally, she was able to rise from her knees and go to the bed of her little sister, where she told Lisa that she loved her and that she was far more important than any lamp. Karen was helped because she had the good habit of regular spiritual feasting. Before she even recognized Satan's attack, her wise habit was providing a protection. We all need that kind of protection. I'd like to conclude with Alma's discourse. Alma's warning is vital. Indeed, if we neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, it will wither away. But like all of the Lord's warnings, there is also a bright side, a promise. Here it is in Alma's words. But if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree, behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet. And ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst that we may commit ourselves to habits of daily spiritual nourishment and be sanctified, is my sincere prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Experiences Produce Results with thoughts from Estela Marquez and Kenneth A. Solon. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.